Welcome to Big Tobacco Messed with the Wrong Moms, a podcast of Parents Against Vaping E-Cigarettes, or PAVE, the national grassroots movement created to fight the youth vaping epidemic. I'm Meredith Berkman. And I'm Dorian Furman, and we're the Wrong Moms. We're really excited to have with us today investigative reporter at Bloomberg News, Lauren Etter, to talk about her new book, The Devil's Playbook, Big Tobacco, Jewel, and the Addiction of a New Generation. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. So happy to be here. Thank you. The Devil's Playbook, for us in reading it, gave us so much backstory about Big Tobacco. Because you're an investigative reporter, there is so much in this book where you are in the room, you know, as Jewel is being developed, you know, as our own movement is being developed. I guess my first question would be, you had covered so much of the Jewel story. What was the most surprising thing you learned as you did a deeper dive on the topic to write the book? So the most interesting thing was, you know, Jewel had been written about so much in the media. There was so much coverage and it was kind of like, okay, this is just another Silicon Valley company that has, you know, made some missteps that's caused havoc, that type of thing. But the more that I learned about Jewel, the more fascinated I became with not only their origin story and where Jewel came from, but how it was so tied, so intertwined with this long history of the tobacco industry. It wasn't like Jewel popped out of nowhere. You could go back to the 1950s and the 1960s and really draw a through line throughout this whole story, tying it to Jewel, which was launched in 2015. So to me, that was the most surprising was that there were so many ties that dated back many, many years and really exploring those and kind of delving deep into those historical threads, I felt like set the foundation for really telling the entire story of this company and this industry, um, which was so interesting to me. And so when you're talking about the threads, the ties, you're talking about the the journey that the tobacco industry has been on to shapeshift, right? To recreate itself by coming up with an alternative that maybe would be, let's call it more, quote, palatable to counteract all of the heavy lifting that was that was done by you know surgeon generals and and public health groups many of our partners on um, exposing the fact that tobacco kills right you're talking about the development of an e-cigarette product like the holy grail of tobacco but not tobacco exactly i mean the tobacco industry you know ever since they realized that their product killed people and, you know, that the agency, the FDA was going to regulate it. They scrambled to try to salvage their business and they were terrible at it. They were not innovators. They didn't know how to how to turn um, an idea into a product. All they really knew how to do was roll shredded tobacco in paper and market it, heavily market it. So there were so many attempts over the years to innovate on the cigarette, to make it, quote unquote, healthier, to make it, you know, they tried 
um, you know, using all different kinds of technology, like in the 80s and 90s. And they were just really bad and bad at innovating. And that was one of the most interesting things to me is that it was kind of a typical story of a very big sort of legacy company trying to innovate on its own product and failing miserably at it. Like Kodak, for example, Kodak trying to innovate on the camera. They don't have an interest to innovate on the camera because, you know, to make it digital would cannibalize their film business or even like the automobile. And I felt like there were some parallels even between those industries. When you look at what, you know, what Tesla did to, you know, Ford Motors or GM or something like that, where did the innovation come from? It didn't come from Detroit. It came from Silicon Valley with Tesla. So I just felt like, you know, the tobacco industry was desperate to innovate. They failed at it. And they were under so much pressure throughout the 1990s with the master settlement agreement and trying to reinvent themselves. They just couldn't rise to the occasion until they had their feet to the fire when, you know, Adam and James, Adam Bowen and James Monsey's truly did innovate on the cigarette. And then they realized that, holy holy cow, the game is changing and we need to try to get into the game. So, um, so yeah, that's what I mean by the historical threads. What you just described, the obfuscation, the, um, the, the hiding, the lying, um, that is exactly what these innovators did. They were innovative enough to come up with something that the tobacco industry wasn't innovative enough to do. And then they realized what the harms were for their product. We'll call that the youth initiation and the youth vaping epidemic. Do you think that they then followed the playbook with the obfuscation, potentially things that may be coming out in some of the AG lawsuits about hiding of documents, all of that? Did they do the same thing? Do you see a parallel there? I mean, definitely the parallel is with uh, is where they find themselves right now. You know, there's you know, they're being inundated by lawsuits. They are, you know, having to defend themselves. They're on the defense and their product and their company is at stake. I mean, they face a real risk, um, you know, going forward of um, whether or not they're actually going to be able to sell their products. So in terms of the larger question, I think that. It's what we definitely know is that Adam and James had a deep familiarity with the, you know, all the entire sordid tale of the tobacco industry. They mined the tobacco documents, um, you know, that had been surfaced through the master settlement agreement and, you know, other AG lawsuits uh, throughout the country. And they found a lot of the early science on nicotine and on vapor and on, you know, nicotine salts and that type of thing. So I think it's definite that they used that information to help build their product. The question about youth marketing, this is what is the most controversial issue right now. And I I don't think it's as clear cut. I think that for sure, they were aware of the marketing problems that were associated with tobacco, youth tobacco use in general, and how the tobacco industry had so brazenly gone after the kids in order to get them hooked and to become the next generation of tobacco users. The Whether or not they replicated that, I think, is the issue that obviously the AGs are trying to prove and to show that they knew they were marketing to kids. The one thing that I know for sure is that 
they marketed their product as a gadget, as something that was cool and sexy and something that was very, you know, the, you know, the latest release of the iPhone. It was the equivalent of that. They hired people whose expertise was not in, you know, youth tobacco use or in um, prevention or anything like that. They hired people who had sold um, uh, clothing, you know, clothing, and they marketed it in a way, in a manner that was designed to be attractive to the set of people who would also be wanting to, you know, buy a new iPhone or buy a new pair of pants. And so I think it's a little bit of a gray zone. Um, You know, there are definitely internal documents that have surfaced through the litigation that show they were aware that their early marketing campaign, the Vaporize campaign, was, you know, attractive to people who were probably not of age to be, you know, legally using a product like, um, like theirs. So it's, this is going to be up to Josh Stein and Maura Healy in order to prove the case. It's not up to me to really make that decision. I know that they, I believe that they at least initially marketed their product in a way that was borderline irresponsible. And so whether or not there's a level of negligence there, I don't know. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt, which I prefer never to do in this case, but let's assume that they did not they did not start out wanting, let's say, to target children. Once they understood what was happening, which as you said, there we know that they did know that that's this was happening. Do you think they did enough? I think it was very poor judgment for them to send people into the schools and to get involved in that at all. I mean, I think that they were desperate to try to reverse sort of the damage that they had done and to, you know, kind of grasping for straws. But I think that they should have had a deeper understanding of the ramifications of what they were doing. And I think that they didn't have the right people around them. I think that they didn't make the best decisions. And no, I mean, if, you know, if one of the those representatives had showed up in my kid's school, I would be pissed, you know? And I think that, again, um, uh, you know, whether or not you want to give them the benefit of the doubt or not, I think that some of their decisions were definitely questionable and, you know, they should not have been in the schools. Um, They should not have marketed their product in a way that was so appealing to kids. I mean, I honestly do think that a lot of this falls on the shoulders of the FDA. I think the FDA did a terrible job. Um, They were exploiting a loophole in the regulatory system and they were taking advantage of it. And this is where this is where the Silicon Valley mindset, I think, really sort of created this just, you know, kind of. It cre- the Silicon Valley mindset created a disaster. You know, they they were chasing, they were trying to do too many things simultaneously, but the number one thing that they were doing was trying to make a profit. And they were exploiting the FDA's regulatory system. They were taking advantage of the fact that they knew how to maximize marketing on social media. And they were basically a bull in a china shop. And I think that they definitely miscalculated. And I think that they're paying the price for that now. And not only not only is a company paying the price now, but there are scores of children, youth out there who are now addicted to nicotine. And that's that's tragic. That did not need to happen. When you think about Juul today, 
are we really just talking about a shell of the original Silicon Valley jewel, but the tobacco industry? And if so, who's in charge, who's responsible? And our fear is that with all of these lawsuits coming out, Jewel's going to declare bankruptcy and like Purdue and, you know, that there will be no one held accountable. I'd love to know what you think is going on at this moment for this company. Yeah. I mean, they're clearly at an inflection point, right? They're waiting for the FDA to decide whether or not they're going to have permission to continue selling their product. That's going to be huge. I mean, that's, I think, so where, where is Jewel right now? Um, they're essentially in a holding pattern. They're waiting to decide whether or not they will have a product to sell. So are they Big Tobacco? Are they Silicon Valley? Are they Jewel? Are they Altria? The answer is that they're a blend. I mean, you know, um, the CEO, of course, of Jewel now is a longtime Altria Philip Morris executive. He's running Jewel. Um, There are several other Altria people who have come over to Jewel. And what they're doing right now is trying to outlast the regulations. They're trying to outlast the, you know, the critics and the lawsuits, which is exactly what the tobacco industry did in the 1990s. During the storm, when they were really at the brink of potentially bankruptcy, they, this is when they pivoted. This is when they started, you know, they rolled out their youth prevention program, which Howard Willard led. They, um, they started talking about social responsibility and this idea of permission to exist. It's almost a replica when you hear Jewel talking about today where they are. They even, Casey will even use words like permission to exist or, you know, some of these kind of buzzwords that the tobacco industry adopted in the 1990s at the turn of the millennium, which was essentially to buy them time. So I believe that Jewel is embodying a a lot, much of the tobacco industry's rhetoric and their strategy which is to buy time, which is to lay low and to just let the 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 slow turning gears of government of the lawsuits to play out and to essentially arrive and remain for another day. That is what their business model is, is they need to continue selling this addictive product, which is a nicotine-based product, to people who are addicted to nicotine. So they are extremely focused on, you know, they've moved their headquarters from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. Like I said, they've hired, you know, individuals from from the, from the Altria. Um, they are employing a lot of the same tactics. So I think it's a very similar moment in time, and um, they're absolutely you know, embodying some of the DNA from the tobacco industry. We're really focused on the flavors. And I was also really interested at the beginning of the book in where you talk a lot about the um, the industries trying to grasp onto this new, you know, trying to come up with a a new a vapor product and the one that originally came from China, et cetera, et cetera. And, and even there, it talks about the flavors. And then you describe um, like the, almost like a witch's brew, you know, early on the, the you know, Muncie's and Bowen with these, these, you know, putting the flavors in and all of that. So, and, and of course the, the research has shown over and over that it's the flavors that initiate the kids into tobacco, into tobacco use. And so we know that flavors are always important. Do you think 
that a menthol jewel will be approved by FDA. What does your instinct tell you is going to happen? I don't have a crystal ball. My instinct is I would be surprised if they did not get approval. I would be very surprised. I mean, what that would mean if they did not get approval is that the FDA would single-handedly be uh, putting a uh, American corporation out of business, potentially. And I don't think the FDA is going to do that, especially when so much of their larger nicotine strategy is predicated on having a potentially reduced harm alternative to give smokers. So if I had to guess, which I don't love doing, um, I would, I'd be surprised if the FDA did not approve um, Juul's PMTA. One of the things that you talk about in this book is that there was something new, which was this coming together of parents like us who were outraged. You're not going to offend us if the answer is no, but mm. I'm not asking even just about our own group. But how do you think having parents, this grassroots movement, how do you think that has impacted what has happened up until now? And what do you think we'll be able to do to protect our kids going forward? Or what do you think we should be doing? Right. No, I think the parent movement movement was absolutely instrumental. Um, you know, starting in, um, obviously, there are simultaneous things happening in San Francisco and in Atherton and New York, where you live and what you were working on. And as you encountered the jewel problem, that type of thing. Um but I think it shifted the debate in an, in a way that was consequential and meaningful for the entire industry. I think, you know, here for me as a journalist, hearing the parents' stories were so powerful and hearing how, you know, the parents would find the jewelers, you know, see this kind of strange thing lying on the pool deck. Or, you know, pull out the pod from their backpack and be like, what is this? This idea that it kind of snuck up on parents and that there was this this very organic kind of rise of just anger toward the industry. I think that that anger really did translate into sort of elevating the the voice of people who are like, this is not okay. You know, we we narrowly avoided um, having the next generation of nicotine addicted children. And now here we are today. I think absolutely the parent movement, you know, was, um, you know, very powerful entity in helping sway sort of the debate and the discussion about what was happening. Because I think that a lot of it, the addiction and, you know, the, the, the youth initiation was happening kind of under the radar in some ways. Although when you go back, you realize it was happening for years. But um, it was really with Jewel, of course, when it became so just ubiquitous. And the parents are like, what is going on? How did my kids suddenly get addicted to nicotine? So I think absolutely the parents were huge and um, obviously have continued to shape the debate and, you know, make meaningful impact in state houses, city councils, city halls, um, you know, all of that. So um, going forward for parents, um, you know, it's it's tricky. It's it's a very it's going to be a continual kind of challenge, I think, for parents because nicotine is not going away in this country. We have an obsession with tobacco. It's 
in our, you know, our history, it's in our roots, you know, there's an entire industry that has formed around this and has become one of the most powerful industries in the country and the world. And their, their primary incentive is to sell more nicotine. Um, I'm just going to read a little excerpt real quick, just this in my epilogue. I, I read, Right, how I talked to Mike Moore, who was the former Mississippi Attorney General who helped take down big tobacco in the '90s, and and I describe how when I asked him about tobacco and nicotine, like what is this thing about nicotine in America that just continues to hold sway over us? And he, his response to me hit it on the head. He says, "Companies have made billions and billions and billions of dollars getting people to suck something into their lungs." I hate to say it so clear, but how could you possibly sell that? There's only one answer, and the answer is nicotine. It's never been about anything else but nicotine. Without it, there's nothing. There's no cigarettes. There's no jewel. There's none of it. So my point in reading that is to say that this drug is not going anywhere. And as we know, 90% of adult smokers, more than 90% of adult smokers start before the age of 18. So for parents, it's going to have to be an awareness thing. I think, you know, hopefully regulators will prioritize youth, uh, youth prevention, like, you know, they have in the past. But, um, but yeah, definitely, I think the takeaway message is that parents need to be um, educated and aware that nicotine is around and it's going to take lots of different forms. You know, you have Lucy with the little tablets, you have, um, you know, of course, puff bar. So it's not only jewel nicotine is going to be, um, around in multiple different forms. And as we know, it's highly addictive and it can affect the development of the, uh, you know, youth brain. And I think that it's something that parents need to be highly aware of and attuned to. Right. And, and I, I will say that thank you for, for, for bringing it. It's not just Juul started the youth vaping epidemic. They, from our perspective, I won't put words in your mouth. They must be held accountable for doing so, but there are plenty of bad actors with puff bar leading the bunch and Miley and so many. And I agree with you. This is about flavored nicotine from our advocacy perspective and even our education perspective, because already we see that Altria, all of the big tobacco companies are now putting out flavored gums. You referenced Lucy gum, nicotine gum and flavored lozenges. The, the fear is a lot of the flavored products that they're putting out there, the, the picks, the, um, the toothpicks that we believe is to keep addicted to nicotine through the use of flavors, our kids. And the ones who've aged out, the class of 2016, which we call them, the kids who were seniors in high school when Juul came out, were completely addicted. Their parents never knew. They went off to college and they've moved on to other flavored nicotine products and other drugs because nicotine is a gateway drug. So from, from our perspective, you're right. Nicotine is a problem, but it's the flavors that have to be stopped in their tracks to, to stop the continuing youth initiation. And frankly, as you said, you know, if a menthol jewel is approved by FDA, that's a disaster because then jewel, that's a flavor. That is the flavor now. Menthol flavor is the one. That's the only flavor Juul has to get approved. And they can continue keeping our kids addicted and initiating more kids into youth use. I'm not saying that they would be deliberately initiating younger kids, but then there's no way of 
cutting off the youth vaping epidemic at its core, which is flavors as initiation. So Lauren, I want to commend you on a fascinating, really well-reported and beautifully written book, not just because we're in it, but because it's fantastic. So congratulations on your book. And are you you going to continue covering this industry, this company? Are you going to move on to something else or will you keep writing about this? Yeah. I mean, I'll definitely still... uh eternally fascinated in this entire industry. I think it's going to, you know, evolve and change in really interesting ways. And I'll certainly be on top of that. And, um, and as for what comes next, I don't know, I'm kind of just having, you know, written this, this book, um, still just kind of trying to figure out the next thing. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun talking to you, Meredith. Thank you so much, Lauren. We always respect your reporting and, and we look forward to the next thing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Lauren's book is available everywhere books are sold. It's a fascinating read, and I really hope that everyone will pick it up and really understand what Jewel did and how the youth vaping epidemic began. We would also love to invite you to join us on our website, parentsagainstvaping.org, and on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Parents Against Vaping is a national grassroots movement of thousands upon thousands of parents around the country who are working hard to educate and to fight the youth vaping epidemic. Join us in our letter writing campaign to FDA. Click on the link in the bio of this podcast or go to our website and click on the banner and tell FDA not to approve any flavored e-cigarette product or any menthol jewel. And you will join parents around the country who have told FDA that our kids matter.